Your old pal, the Crypt Tonight's tale of terror comes from the Trick or Treaters podcast. Join them as they journey into the horrifying unknown. <laughs> you are listening to the Trick or Treaters podcast, part of the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Movie reviews, horror news, and all the gory details. Listen if you dare. And hello everyone and welcome to episode 6 of the Trick or Treaters podcast. I am your host Kyle. I'm joined as always by my co-hosts JR and Maria. Unfortunately, Maria will be joining us later on for the review because I'm an idiot and didn't hit record the last time we recorded. <laughs> so anyway, how are you doing, Jr.? I appreciate your honesty, Kyle, because I would straight up lie and just be like, Maria will join us at a, at a later date. <laughs> so because I never want to say how that I'm horrible at something because, yeah. <laughs> so I, but that's that what makes you better than me. It happens sometimes you start talking and you go, oh, wait. I forgot to hit record. <laughs> hey, that's a little bit behind the scenes to all of our, you know, all of our listeners that we appreciate, love dearly. That way, you guys know that we're human and we're that no one's perfect and we all make mistakes. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about one of your favorite movies. I know the one that uh, you've been excited about reviewing, and I'm pretty excited about it. It's, in my opinion, one of the one of the best horror movies there is, and definitely one of, if not the best slasher movie there is. We're we'll talking about 1978's John Carpenter's Halloween. For me, and you will hear through our review about how much I love this film. It's for me, this is what kind of like gave the blueprint on how to make a, an amazing slasher film. And I, a lot of that goes into it. And we're gonna go through the the notes that we have before we actually get to the review. But some of the things that went into the filming that made it so special to me, and why it will last the test of time. So I guess we'll just go ahead and get started. Before we get started with a couple of facts before the uh, before we get in the review, uh, since this is our, our first recording that we're going to get to talk about it, we recently joined the Slashing Cast Podcast Network, and we're very excited to be a part of that. Uh, it's been a, a network of shows that, that, that I've listened to for quite a while, and uh, I know J.R. Maria has too, and we all have friends over various shows uh, on the network, and we're just very happy to be a part of the, a part of the network, and if uh, any if any of you have never listened to any other the shows on the network, we highly recommend you check them out. Uh, especially our friends, uh, Scream Queens, uh, Dead in Santa Carla podcast. We came from beneath the sea, and then also uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Bloody Date Night. To find out that news last week that we were going to be part of the Slash and Cast Net- Network, it was kind of surreal. And I don't, you know, I know for a lot of people it may not seem like a big deal, but for you know, for me, because I, you know, I, as much as I joke. I feel like I'm on my harshest critic of myself. I feel you, Kyle, and Maria helped bring me up to a higher level. And hearing all the good things they said about our podcast tells me that, you know, us working together, we have good chemistry and they appreciate and respect what we've done in the short time we've been around. Because, you know, especially when you listen to Dead in Santa Carla and our friend Scream Creams, I mean, they are just phenomenal at what they do. And, 
it, it really was a, a great feeling to know that they appreciate all of our work and that they uh, respect us enough to be part of their network. So um, I just it's just a really good feeling that I really can't explain in words. Yes, we're very excited to be a part of that, and we hope everyone will check out their other shows on the network. Before we get into the review of Halloween, we got a couple of uh, interesting facts to go over. So even though this is based on Halloween night, the film was filmed in Pasadena, California in the spring instead of the fall. And uh, because of it being filmed in the spring, it was hard for the uh, cast to find like uh, pumpkins and 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 like and and stuff like that and then there wasn't many leaves so like they actually had to get people to make paper leaves and paint them to make them appear as fall leaves and uh i haven't seen it myself but apparently there's scenes where if you look closely you can see palm trees in the background where they kind of screwed up and and didn't uh, get them out of the background yeah you know first me and myself you know for those who don't know Kyle, Maria, and I, we were kind of whispered out throughout the United States. I live in California. I live a few hours north of the L.A. area where Pasadena is. And we don't have, you know, trees that you would see in the Illinois area. We have pine trees and we have palm trees, extensive amount of palm trees and a lot of greenery. And for this to be filmed in spring must have been a nightmare because if you go right now, you know, we're filming, I mean, we're airing or recording today, which is September 28th. The last week and a half, I've seen, you know, pumpkins and gourds everywhere through all the grocery stores in our area. You cannot find a pumpkin to save your life in the springtime. So I have no idea where they found any sort of pumpkins for this film. And if you, one of the big scenes is the pumpkin carving between Lori and Tommy. So even just finding one pumpkin that size must have been Mission Impossible for them. I can't imagine how how hard it was to find pumpkins, and it just <laughs> I love the fact that they just went through the t- trouble of of painting leaves just to make it appear as fall. And one of the things is, as they're th- the leaves that they're doing, there's actually this was mentioned in another another film on. And behind the scenes, according to Robert England, who played Freddy Krueger, that first, I don't know why, but he was on set of John Carpenter's Halloween. And he was, John Carpenter had him throw leaves around on set for specific scenes. So knowing that six years later, he would be, you know, one of the most famous horror icons of all time, Freddy Krueger was on scene that on Halloween, tossing leaves is, for me, is kind of amazing in itself that's hilarious that they had freddy krueger out there throwing leaves around instead of halloween i mean the other thing when we go this we're talking about production but also the cost this this film the film of halloween directed by john carpenter originally it was titled the babysitter murders and it was supposed to be held over the course of multiple days but because of the budget situation and the budget that they had um, that was given by mustafa akkad or cod I can never say his last name correctly, was approximately $300,000. It's been said it was increased to three twenty-five dollars because of the the cost of Donald Pleasant's salary, which was $25,000. And then uh, in addition to that, half the money that they had, the original $300,000, went to a specific uh, camera. 
it was called it's uh, it's a Panavision camera to shoot a 2.35 to one uh, ratio scope. So a hundred fifty thousand dollars went to this cam- went to this camera. John Carpenter was paid twenty thousand dollars to film it. Donna Pleasance was paid approximately twenty thousand um, dollars to be in it. Laurie Stroh was paid eight thousand dollars. So if I'm doing my math correctly, which I think I am, that's one fifty, that's one ninety, um, almost two hundred thousand dollars went to just the camera and three salaries. So they had approximately a little over maybe a hundred, hundred five thousand dollars for everything else for this film. And because of the budgetary constraints, they ended up. It was being decided. Um, I can't remember who the person was. I believe it was. I'm going to mess it up. I want to say it was Erwin Yablins. I believe that was the name. I could be wrong, but that originally they, that he was a part of the, the entire, you know, creative staff with, with Halloween is that if we change the name and we pick Halloween, which is supposed to be scariest night and we do all in one day, we, we don't have to spread us out multiple days, which is going to cost additional wardrobe changes. And to go into that, um, Jamie Lee Curtis went to a JC Penney's and was given uh, paid a hundred dollars for her wardrobe, and that was a wardrobe she wore for basically the entire day because from the from her scenes in the morning of Halloween to the end of the night, that's what Halloween was between that part, with the exception of the two scenes, the the beginning part when Michael was a child, and then when he escapes from the mental institution, and that's why it was changed from Babysitter Murders to Halloween, and if you actually Throughout the whole course of the film, if you look, besides the name of Halloween, Michael is essentially stalking babysitters throughout the whole film. There's no, there's nothing else to explain what Michael is doing except that he's killing babysitters. Yeah. Uh, another thing uh, is, uh, so for those who don't know, Michael Myers is played by three different actors. I know Nick, uh, uh, Nick Castle is the one everyone Everyone knows this Michael Myers in the original, but he's played by Nick Castle, Tony Moran, and Tommy Lee Wallace. And for those uh, who know, uh, Tommy Lee Wallace is in the iconic closet scene where Laurie's in the closet. That's Michael being played by Tommy Lee Wallace, who was the director of the It miniseries in the 1990. And he also went on to direct uh, Halloween uh, 3, Season of the Witch. Yes, and was also the, the star of, of Season of the Witch, too, which, yeah. as we all know, this is my least favorite Halloween film of all time. <laughs> In addition to that, one of the, as we talked about, you know, who played Michael Myers, Nick Castle was paid $25 essentially per day when he filmed. But one of the reasons why it was played by so many people was, again, due to the lack of cost and essentially trying to get the filming done as soon as possible because they filmed it over 20 days they basically picked anybody. Like if you if you were a certain feet tall and you could basically fit the jumpsuit, the mechanic jumpsuit, you were picked to play Michael Myers. And there's rumors to suggest that even at certain points that Jar Carpenter even donned the suit for certain scenes. I'm not sure how true that is, but it's been talked about there that those are the three most famous people: Tony Moran, Nick Castle, and Tommy Lee Wallace. But there's been mentioned that even up to six people have played Michael Myers throughout various scenes of the film. I remember reading that apparently Nick Castle was just hanging out on set, and that's when they offered him if he wanted to play Michael. 
Yeah. And, and speaking of casting, we talked about Laurie Strode's character. You know, she was paid $8,000. She was played by Jamie Lee Curtis. This was Jamie Lee Curtis's first feature film. And, you know, some people may say, well, at the time, Laurie at filming was only 19 years of age. So technically, she was the only teenager at the time of this filming. And I said, well, why would you, you know, basically cast an important role to give to Laurie? And, you know, at the same time, this film... At the budget it was, this was this is an independent film. This isn't a major motion picture or anything like that. Um, so, But with that said, the, one of the main reasons why that John Carpenter casted Jamie Lee Curtis was Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, Jana Lee, was, you know, had the legendary iconic role in Psycho, the Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock film. And they felt this was almost like the ultimate tribute that you could give into Jamie Lee Curtis's mother and and Alfred Hitchcock was to have Jamie Lee Curtis star star as Laurie Strode in this film. Also, the town uh, Halloween's based in Haddonfield, Illinois. The whole town was based off of the screenwriter Deborah Hill, her hometown of Haddonfield, New Jersey. Yeah, and for those of you not aware, Deborah Hill at the time was in was in a relationship with John Carpenter, and they partnered together for this. So, the screenplay was done by John Carpenter, Deborah Hill. Deborah Hill produced it. Deborah Hill was the director. In addition to that, in the beginning part of the film, and we'll get to this, you know, briefly, in the beginning scene of the film where. Uh, Michael Myers at age six kills his sister, um, Judith Myers. The hand that you see coming down with the knife is actually Deborah Hill's hand because she was essentially the smallest person on the set whose hand would look could be reminiscent of a child's hand. That kind of shows you that this was really an all hands on deck type film where people played multiple roles. And, you know, in addition to that, the the music is by John Carpenter, but the score, everybody knows, um, is really you know, is put together by both John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, the iconic, you know, Halloween theme, the main title. Yeah, and speaking of that, uh, so an original screening of the film, a critic told Carpenter that the the score wasn't very scary, and so he ended up writing the score that you hear in the movie in just three days. But on top of that, if you uh, know anything about filming, you know that a majority of movies are filmed like at a, a shot out of sequence. Well, in order to help Jamie Lee Curtis to you know know during a certain scene how scared she's supposed to be, John Carpenter actually developed a fear meter. Uh, I think it was on a scale of one to ten how scared she's supposed to be during that scene. That's one of the amazing things because this film's so well put together. For me, I would never thought that this was done out of sequence, and I know that's very common. But it, it's, I, you know, knowing that they did that to to hide in that um, is pretty awesome, in my opinion. Oh yeah. So like when you hear the knife stabbing sound effect, that's actually someone stabbing a knife through a watermelon. You know, as we say, we're we're recording. I just want just in case I missed it in that beginning part where he killed his sister is the only scene that you will see in that movie where there's uh, any sort of blood. And that has to do because of the cost. And that's it. Like all the other deaths, there's no other, there's no other blood, which is kind of funny because in our previous one, our, one of our previous reviews, we did a scream. They're watching, uh, they're watching Halloween. And one of the characters said, there's too much blood. And I kind of laughed during it because I was like, there's literally no blood in Halloween with the exception of the opening scene. Um, I thought that was kind of, you know, kind of funny, odd, uh, you know, owed to that. 
I wonder if that was them kind of like picking fun at there being no blood in Halloween. Another interesting part when we look at casting, we look at uh, the character PJ Souls, who plays Linda in Halloween. She was casted, and actually the role was created for her because of the character she played as Norma in Carrie. So John Carpenter really kind of started looking at other characters, you know, inspiration from other films when he put this kind of casting together as best he did. With the other casting, we talk about, you know, Donald Pleasance, he was where he was paid. Donald Pleasance was by far the most experienced actor on this set. I mean, I remember watching his film. I think it was All Quiet on the Western Front, if I'm not mistaken. I'm trying to um, one of the films that he did that we had to watch in film school. Or not film school, I should say, in history class when I was in high school. I think it was All Quiet on the Western Front. But, I mean, his his film, you know, this was done in 1978. He had been in film since the 50s, the early 50s at that. And the only reason, the only reason why he did this film was, as he said, he had to pay alimony and child support. But his daughter was in a rock band, and the daughter liked John Carpenter's score, and I believe it was Assault on Precy 13. And that was the only reason why that Donald Pleasance took this role as, as um, Dr. Samuel Loomis. Um, at the time, they had looked at other char- characters. We uh, talked about um, there was the, gen- the person, I can't think of his name, but he played Grand Moff Tarkenton in Star Wars. There was also the gentleman who played um, the original Dracula, as well as he played Count Dooku in episode two and three of Star Wars. Um, he was originally looked at as playing Dr. Samuel Loomis, but they went with, uh, because the pay was so low, that was one of the reasons why that they want Donald Pleasance. This uh, this one's pretty interesting uh, that I found. So. It, like all throughout Halloween, like everybody knows his name, the killer's name is Michael Myers. But in the script and in the credits, he's he's casted as the shape. Well, uh, that what that came from is uh, back in the Salem witch trials, the judges would refer to the spirits that were messing with people as the shape, and the, that's where they got that from. One of the things I would talk about. Halloween being the scariest day of the year, the festival of, and this is kind of talked about in Halloween two and later the theories about Sam Hain, but the whole character about Michael Myers was like this unstoppable evil. And, you know, Dr. Loomis has that, you know, famous um, monologue about, you know, pure evil, the darkest eyes, the devil eyes. To me, it's kind of cool knowing that because, with those spirits is like this is just this is pure evil spirit that's embodied in michael myers that makes him an unstoppable killing machine that's what i've always liked about michael myers is that i know he's technically you know human and there's not supposed to be any kind of supernatural thing going on but it it does seem like him being pure evil is what keeps him alive and everything and it's how it's how he's able to take so much damage and still get up and walk away after so long. Well, and, and then also, if you think of that, you know, the evil spirit and being on the most, the worst, you know, the most evil, hol- evil day of the year, Halloween, yeah. it also kind of makes sense too, because what other, you know, Michael Myers essentially only becomes alive or active on Halloween or, or right before Halloween, like the day before 
and that's when he does the most damage. It almost seems like once November 1st hits at midnight, he just turns catatonic again. And so it's kind of, you know, that's kind of, you know, interesting about that. Also, I think that also plays a lot into his, the mask that he uses, where, you know, the famous, he's wearing a Captain Kirk mask that's turned inside out, painted white, the hair's teased to look this certain way. And it gives him that blank expression that he has, where it's just he, you know, he has, he's pure evil, he's emotionless. And one of the things is they actually looked at other masks and, you know, we had talked about, they looked at a captain, at a, uh, at a Spock mask, which I can't even imagine Michael Myers wearing a Spock mask. I mean, I don't know what they would have done with those ears. I mean, that just would have been the weirdest thing to me. That would have been hilarious to see. I need someone to like redo certain scenes, but with pointy, pointy ears I, instead. Like, I can't even put the two together as far as, like, how that would even work. But another one, and we talk about, you know, the motionless and pure evil, was they had talked about using an, a mask. There's a famous clown that was born in the late 1800s, died, you know, actually right after this film. His name was Emmett Kelly, and he was known kind of, he had a big red nose. He had um, a red, kind of red face, big white smile. And they actually had his name had this mask, Emma Kelly mask with teased red hair, and that was kind of they had thought about using this mask, and um, I think they may were going to go with it, but they felt that it would, it would cause the character of Michael to have too much emotion, which you know I'm trying to you know when you look at other films, and I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but the only thing I keep coming to is the unfortunate true story of the killer clown John Wayne Gacy. And I, I, I know they made movies about John Wayne Gacy, but it's just, you know, kind of like a killer clown. And it's, it kind of, it is scary because clowns, clowns are scary, but it's also kind of like it gives them a life, if that makes sense. Whereas with the mask that Michael Myers uses, with the blank, you know, the blank expression, with pale white face, it's kind of like, it's, there's no emotion, there's no life, this is unstoppable, like, there's nothing you can do to, you know, hurt him. Um, I don't know how they would have went on that side, too, if they would have used um, this clown mask that's known as Emmett, an Emmett Kelly mask. I don't know if, if you ever noticed uh, this, but uh, this is kind of funny. So, so everybody knows that Michael Myers you know, killed his sister when he was six years old. And then 15 years later is when he escapes, which would put Michael being 21. Well, in the end credits, Michael is casted as Michael age 23. That's not good (laughs) because I'm trying to think like, okay, well they didn't say Michael was 21 until Halloween two, but they said, but they did said that, I mean, in that monologue that Dr. Loomis says, he goes, I met this six year old boy. Yeah. You know, with the, the, the darkest side. So, yeah, that's not um, – that's a, that's a boo-boo that they made. Yeah, there's quite a few of boo-boos like that. But other than that, there's one where uh, when you see Judith Meyers' uh, gravestone, take the year she was born and the year she died, and that put her around 15, 16 years old. But throughout the movie, they say she's 17. I'll be honest, I never caught that. I do remember, though, that then he said Laurie's 17, and even if you go into the future, you know – 20 years h2o 20 years later 
that was kind of the big thing is that Laurie Strode's son was 17. So that, that makes sense that everybody was 17. Yeah. Last but not least, before we get into review, even though Laurie and Annie and everybody else are all playing teenagers in the movie, Jamie Lee Curtis was the only teenager during the film of this movie. She was uh, 19. Extremely young. This was her first feature film. It was an odd to... Um, you know, he was inspired by actually two films, John Carpenter. He was inspired by Psycho as well as Black Christmas. I mean, this really put Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode on the map as as a Hollywood player. Because after this, I mean, then she did The Fog and Prom Night, Terror Train, Halloween 2, um, which really that really cemented her because then she started doing bigger films like Trading Places, which is also funny, too, because she did all those Scream Queen films. And one of the things she says, she hates she hates horror films because she hates to be surprised. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, she's known for Halloween and everything. But she hates horror films, and uh, like I, I'm shocked she came back for the 2018 reboot. My only assumption is, I mean, eventually we're going to cover the rest of the films, but it's, you know, they really, really were trying to bring the the horror horror back in Halloween because it kind of went off the rails with, you know, Resurrection, and actually shout out to Dead uh, Dead in Santa Carly because they're going to cover Halloween Resurrection. And it definitely went off the rails with Rob Zombie's, you know, remake and his sequel to his remake. And, you know, this was uh, this was in that what's the term, Kyle? Um, creative hell. Yeah. You know, because there were stories about they were going to do a sequel to Resurrection and he was going to I think there were, he was going to be on death row and something was going to happen. And during the time he was supposed to be executed and he was able to escape, um, you know, there, there was. You know, it was out there. Um, and when you hear Blumhouse and Dan McBride take it over and then John Carpenter was going to be bringing it in. And I think that's kind of where, in my opinion, would help bring, Lord, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis back in. It's like, hey, we have this idea. Let's run it by you. And I think there's always kind of that respect thing. I mean, if you look at um, if you look at another situation, like you look at Neff Campbell and Scream. You know, she was very hesitant to come back to to do this Scream sequel be, after the you know the death of Russ Craven because I think what the film potentially could be, in addition to that, also just that respect that she had for Wes for Wes Craven. And I think that's kind of similar to John Carpenter and Jamie Lee Curtis because this was her first feature film, Halloween, and there is that respect of hey. Um, you know, you helped break me in. You gave me my first feature film. You're coming back. You know, what do you have for me? Let's see if we can make this work. And then another thing, too, is that she's also serving an executive producer. And I think I don't know what her what her plans are, because she definitely she definitely kind of started sliding, you know, in the 2000s. I mean, she did H2O. But then if you look, she kind of had, you know, she did one film a year, you know, between 2002, 2005. And then she started having these significant gaps. And now she, you know, being executive producer in Halloween, you know, maybe that's something she wants to get into is, you know, producing film. The, the last thing I wanted to, you know, throw your way, Kyle, is as I talked about how much I love this film, but this film was recognized and is selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry, which is the Library of Congress, as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And we talk about the cinematography, we talk about the score, um, the acting, and you look at other films that are part of this whether it's, you know, there's Ben-Hur, there's Scarface, Breakfast at Tiffany's, 
Cinderella's here. There's, I mean, if you just look it up, there's some of the most important films in the history of filmmaking is preserved. And, you know, if you wonder, you know, why is that significant? It's that it's to show that these films are going to last the test of time. If you take it, I'll take a different film. You know, Empire Strikes Back is listed on here. Everybody's going to always remember Empire Strikes Back. I don't know how many people are going to remember, you know, Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace or Attack of the Clones. But if you ever, if you know, Lord forbid, there's some sort of film complete breakdown where everything gets lost. But if you go to the United, if you go to the United States Library of Congress and you look up National Film Preservation, this film will always be there, and they select these films um, to be preserved for the arts. And the same thing happens in uh, music is very similar; it does the exact same thing. And I think that's extremely important because it's it's such a respect that this film is given to be selected for this registry. That's amazing for, you know, this low budget horror movie to be selected. I mean, just to and get all that. I mean, just to put it in perspective, we talked about it, but this it was it was three hundred thousand dollars in nineteen seventy eight. And today's amount of money, that's it was basically almost one point two million dollars. It made forty seven million in the box office, which today it would be a hundred and fifty million. And I mean, to make a hundred and fifty times your budget is insane. I mean, think about that. Like, it, if I'm doing math correctly, you know, a movie like Avengers Endgame, you know, which is like a quarter of a million, a quarter of a billion dollars to film, that means it would be, it would make a number so, ma- it would have to be a number so massive, you know, to, I mean, I couldn't even come up with the amount. It would be like, like 60 zeros or something like that. So to make, as much as it did on the budget it did is just phenomenal. You, you don't see that anymore. It's just, it's not possible. And I think it's the, I think it's all the hard work and dedication of the creative team, John Carpenter, Deborah Hill, you know, Jamie Curtis, Donald Pleasance, the, the supporting cast. And I just, I'm just going to stop because now I'm going to keep on going. I just have a lot of respect for this film and the people who are part of it because everything they did and the way it was shot and the dialogue and what was done will always last the test of time. Oh yeah. I, I agree with you. And like, just like I say, it just, it's, it, it, it's insane how huge this movie got and all the recognition, and everything considering like, you know, I'm not saying, you know, they didn't care about the movie, but like, you know, this is just a movie John Carpenter made because he wanted to make a movie that didn't really cost much money to make because he didn't, he really didn't have the money to spend on it. And so they create this, they, I mean, they wrote the script in like what, it was 10 days and filmed the whole movie in 20. So, I mean, it, it, this is like a very like low budget, low budget, like almost, almost indie thing. And it just, you know, blew expectations and everything out of the water. If you look at John Carpenter and his start, I mean, he's the master of taking something that's not given a whole lot of money. I mean, if you look at what he did with, um, you know, we thought 300000 wasn't a lot. I mean, he did Assault on Priestley 13 on a $100,000 budget. And a yeah. lot of people have, I'm, I've never, it has wasn't a movie I haven't seen yet. I've never saw because I just never had interest. And now I kind of want to see yeah. this. But $100,000 in, I mean, in 1976, even then is not a lot of money 
and hit the film before. It's funny, as I said that the first film he ever directed was a movie called Dark Star, and that had a sixty thousand dollar budget. So he went from seventy four or six thousand dollar budget to a hundred thousand dollar budget in seventy six to a three hundred thousand dollar budget, and then even in nineteen eighty, after Halloween, he he shot The Fog with the million dollar budget. I mean, this guy wasn't given anything. I I think his first biggest budget was in nineteen eighty one. He was given six million dollars to do Escape from New York. So I mean, oh, he's God. just he's he's a creative genius to do the most with the least. No matter what people say about it, you know, the, he has a very unique style about him with all of his films. Whether you know, I, you know Halloween, Escape from New York, uh, you know, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, you know, and the list goes on. Uh, with some of the other films he's done, it, it's something unique. But he does his goal is to tell a story that is going to be amazing and really get the most out of the people he uses. Let's not waste any more time. Without further ado, we're talking about John Carpenter's Halloween. Let's get to it. Halloween night, a small American town, fifteen years ago. Michael? Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. The first shot is um, Halloween night, 1963. And we see a point of view perspective through a mask. And we come to find out it's little six-year-old Michael Myers. And he looks in through the house windows and sees his older sister, Judith, with her boyfriend. He comes around the back, goes into the house, and he takes a kitchen knife and starts going up. As we see at the time, Judith had already made her way up to her bedroom with her boyfriend, which would have been like a total time of two minutes. As Michael's about to go upstairs, uh, he darts back around the corner because Judith's boyfriend comes down, leaves the house. As Michael goes up the stairs, and this is one of the interesting things in this film, um, as we talked about the about how they had such a limited budget, the the hallway going upstairs is has is lit by lights, but because they didn't have enough money to purchase multiple lights, they actually ended up, as the character goes up the stairs, moving the lights that's past them and moving it forward so it can continue uh, lighting the hallway that goes up the stairs. As Michael enters the room, his sister Judith doesn't see, see him as she's combing her hair, and uh, she turns around and screams, Michael, and all of a sudden we hear this eerie noise as we talk about the score of this film that's so amazing as Michael is stabbing his sister and this is the one of the most interesting kills in the entire movie for the reason being the person who's doing the stabbing is actually Deborah Hill because Deborah Hill was one of the smallest persons on the set that they were able to mimic the stabbing as we see as we look down and we see uh, Judith covered in some blood this is the only time that blood is shown in the entire film because they didn't have enough money to purchase for multiple bloody scenes. So this is the one only time throughout this film you will see blood in a death scene. As he gets out of stabbing his sister, he goes down the stairs. We see a car pull up 
out of the car comes uh, Michael's parents. They say his name. They take off his clown mask, and he's there in a trance with a with and the knife in his hand in his clown suit. And then we flash to um, the next, which is 15 years later, Halloween Eve, October 3rd, 1978. So what did you guys think of the opening scene? A lot, dude. This this opening scene is like one of my favorites. Like, I love the whole perspective of seeing the whole scene from first person view of Michael's eyes. It reminds me of like in Friday the Thirteenth, how like throughout whenever Jason, like you'll you'll see people what is supposed to be from his point of view. So like that's what it reminded me of whenever I first saw this. Yeah, this this whole opening scene is really impactful to me because it really sets up the tone of the movie. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed just the intro to this movie. It sets a massive tone of just this dark, gritty evilness that this kid have. Um, just the way he's breathing behind the mask, like there's no thought, there's no empathy, there's no sympathy for what he's doing. Um, and yeah, I love that he comes out in a little clown outfit at the end. Just my thing. He has a little jester outfit. Um, but it's just like, man, you knew there had to be signs before all this happened that this kid was nuts. But you all decided to leave him with his sister yeah. <laughs> and take off because you just don't go from a regular kid to a murder. You know, there was there was animals murdered before this, you know. So it just makes me want to know what kind of kid he was. You know, I, I would love to have some sort of backstory that actually is, um, how would you say, true to the first and second movie that they have, even if it was a book form, I would love to kind of get more of a gauge of the parents dealing with the kid and things like that. Yeah. That was actually one of the things that I, I saw was they did make, it's a very rare book that wasn't, I don't think in print a lot, but they talked about in this book, there was more of a backstory about Michael Myers. I'd be interested in finding and reading that book. This is probably the only book I would read. Um, as I mentioned, you know, earlier, JR doesn't read because if it's a good enough to make a book, they'll make a movie out of it. <laughs> It's never a good enough movie to mimic the book. <laughs> I just love saying that because it gets people triggered. Yeah, especially, I know. <laughs> especially, especially a librarian. <laughs> so as we fast track into uh, 15 years later, October 30th, 1978, Michael Psychiatrist, Dr. Samuel Lewis, Samuel Loomis, who's played by Donald Pleasance, and his colleague, uh, who I believe is a nurse, I've always thought it was a nurse at this time, uh, Marion Chambers, they arrive at Smith's Grove Sanitarium to escort Michael to court. Um, Dr. Lewis has talked about multiple times, as we see throughout this film, about, you know, he was supposed to be locked up in maximum security. And in fact, in one of the deleted scenes um, that I believe was shown in the TV version, because I have seen this deleted scene, that Mike, that Dr. Loomis is, goes to a um, a hearing before we get to this point where he's like de- it's demanding like Michael stay locked up. And I'm trying to remember if the latest scene was in Hall from a flashback in Halloween or a flashback in Halloween two. Um, I, think, I think it was Halloween two. And but you know, we talked about specifically that you know he's he's evil, pure evil. He needs to stay locked up and. They basically no one listens to him because they're like, he hasn't done anything as he's been locked up for 15 years. Um, as we get there, as we get outside of the sanitarium, as it's raining, and that's another thing. Why is it always raining when bad shit happens? Anybody ever notice that? Yeah. Like Every time, it's like almost every single horror film, it's always like something bad's going to happen when it starts raining. Um, we see inmates are walking around the gate and, um, you know, 
the, the gates close and he can't get in, Dr. Loomis, so he gets out, and all of a sudden we see somebody in a gurney in a gown jump up on top of the car and smashes the window and to get to Marion Chambers, she gets out, the person jumps in the car and steals the car and drives off. And come to find out this is Michael Myers. And you won't tell me he took out all those people, all those guards? Every single last one of them. And he didn't take out the crazies. Why would he take out the crazies for? Because he doesn't care. He's a killer with no soul. <laughs> you would think he would do that. But he has a plot, though. That's what, you, that's what people, he has a plan. He's a man with a plan. <sighs> okay. <laughs> so, basically, in this, we've actually, I don't want to jump around to other films, but this has actually happened, we saw this in a, a different film, in Resurrection, where he he leaves he leaves certain uh, inmates in that sanitarium uh, go. One of the things I, I, that I love about this film is that I've always felt, and I think this is based on people's opinions or how or interpretation. We don't find this out. This isn't even discussed in the film in Halloween. Like we don't know what Michael's motive is at all in Halloween. It's never discussed at all until Halloween too. But one of the things they talked about was looking at uh, Celtic traditions of Halloween and Samhain is that there's this idea that you couldn't kill evil, that evil is an unstoppable force. And for me, that's what always felt with Michael Myers was that Michael was this pure, malicious, malevolent force of evil that couldn't be stopped. And he was on Halloween. It, this, it came alive in him to go after and destroy the living. And one of the things that people talk about, like the car scene, is that they're like, how could this person who was locked up from the age of 6 to 21 all of a sudden learn how to drive a car? And, that, and one of the things, as far my kind of explanation, for lack of a better word, was that somebody who's driven by pure evil, that anything is possible because evil controls them. Okay, okay, so we're, we're going to go with that one. I mean, the, the other thing, too, is some, I mean, this is, I guess, part of that. But one of the things is when I was looking up information about this, um, they said when this movie, when the movie was was put into a novel, they came up with this basically explanation that when Dr. Loomis was having to drive Michael everywhere, that Michael just simply just watched him. So, I mean, he's that would this, work. So they said that um, and this is specifically quote, Michael simply watched very closely and carefully as Dr. Loomis operated the car. Uh, remember, even if Michael sat in the back seat, there was a screen of bulletproof glass partition. Michael could still look over the doctor's shoulder without Loomis realizing the, you know, the significance. Well, if you go with the book, because now you have me looking up the book, there is like a whole like lore about the Celtic thing, like you said, about the festivals and just the type of um, curse you would say. It, it implies that Michael Myers is kind of like possessed by this weird soul, even through his grandfather who killed two people. Um, at a Halloween harvest. So, I mean, if it is this evil embodiment of something, he would be able to do whatever he wanted to. So, yeah, the driving thing is a total thing. Like Dr. Loomis said that he could even like manipulate staff and patients to kind of do what he wanted while he was incarcerated by just talking to them. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> I just love how that's my big gripe with this movie is him driving. I, I don't even question how he knows where his sister is. <laughs> and, and which one is her? <laughs> I just that part's fine. It's just the whole driving thing that ticks me off. Well, and the other thing too is that we also have to remember is that in the first Halloween, 
it's never mentioned that this is his sister. Yeah, not till Halloween too. And if you go based on like you know the premise of the babysitter murders, what this film is called, he's basically stalking babysitters throughout this whole film. Yeah. And and this will go to the this goes into the uh, you know as we move on after Halloween to Halloween Day, Lori Strode is on her way. Um, who's played by Jamie Lee Curtis is on her way to school, but her dad, uh, who owns Strode Liberty, uh tells her that she needs to drop off a key at the old Myers house. And when she drops off the key at the Meyer house, she runs into uh, Tommy Doyle, who tells her, you can't go there, that's where the boogeyman lives. And she puts the key, and when she puts the key and kind of gets up, we see through the house, Michael Myers looks at her. So that's from, like, the first part where they have, you know, basically that Michael sees Laurie Strode. And yeah. from there, he's basically continues to stalk her throughout the day. Um, that she, she only her notices, but as she goes to school, she meets up with her friend, uh, Annie, who's the daughter of Sheriff Brackett, and her other friend, Linda, who basically just tell her she's kind of crazy. Dr. Loomis has this, uh, after having this altercation where he talks to another doctor at Smith's Grove, tells him, like, you know, that he warned everybody and, you know, to tell, to notify the police where he's going. They're like, Haddonfield is 100 miles away. Where would he go? He doesn't know how to drive. And, they, and he says the famous line, how does, you know, Maybe he learned. Maybe somebody gave him lessons. He did very well last night. Hmm. And he kind of throws everybody off is when he says that. Yeah. Another thing, as we come to find out, that the doctor that, and again, I don't want to go off into the films, but in this, uh, this kind of to put that to kind of have a to put a hole in the plot, or not put a hole in the plot, but to plug a hole about driving. The person that that Doctor Loomis is talking to is Ter- uh, Doctor Terrence Wynn, his colleague. Um, as you come to find out in Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, Dr. Wynn is a part of this, we talk about the Curse of Thorn, and that he basically was the one who cared for Michael Myers at Smith's Grove this entire time. So it's kind of like this theory that Dr. Wynn taught Michael how to drive. Yeah. So from there, uh, Dr. Loomis drives, and he stops at a payphone, uh, and he sees the hospital gown of Michael as well as a broken down truck. What he doesn't see is a dead body. Now Michael killed a tr- a um a mechanic and stole his jumpsuit. This is where he gets the famous jumpsuit, which if one of the things if you want to kind of put a hole is like why did he steal a jumpsuit for? Yeah. Like hey, everything everything he's gonna take, like he takes a jumpsuit. I mean I guess he wants to look cool or something. I don't know. I, I guess to get a change of clothes or something. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't a regular truck driver. My dad worked for AAA for a while, and that's what he wore. And he always kept one in his car in case something were to happen. It's just one of those things that you do. Um, so, like, when he wore it, it kind of made sense to me. Like, we don't really exactly know what that guy's job was, but I definitely had a change of clothes. And it's dark colored, so that kind of keeps you blending in with your surroundings instead of having, like, a white patient's outfit. Yeah, I mean, and I think it also could be the only other thing I would also add, one of those, like, uh, an opportunity thing where he meet, he obviously needs a change of clothes and he sees this person, kills him and takes a jumpsuit because it was the same size as his. Um, the person was, it wasn't a uh, truck driver. It was, um, it was like, it, like a AAA guy. Like you said, it was like somebody who had like a, I think it was like a towing type truck. Yeah. That's what I was like. I think it was towing. I wasn't sure. I didn't want to say it, but yeah, I'm like, I, I, that's exactly what they would wear. So that's kind of like, it made sense to me. Um, yeah. Plus, what like I said, it looks good when it's dark colored, and it just played on to the whole like he's in the shadows and he's that shape kind of type person. So I liked it. 
So from there, Dr. Loomis finally arrives in Haddonfield. And right before he arrives in Haddonfield to meet Sheriff Brackett, we see that there's a few scenes with Lori and her friends. As Lori's walking home with Annie and Linda, she sees Michael Myers behind a bush. And she tells Annie and Annie goes over to see and there's he's not there. In addition to that, as like literally almost a second before another scene before they get to Dr. Loomis arriving and had Phyllis see Sheriff Brackett, Annie's on the phone with Lori. Lori looks out her window and sees Michael Myers inside of inside of her like the sheets hanging up outside. And then she um, says that she thinks it was like the next door neighbor or something like that. She shuts her window. And finally, at this point, Annie picks up Lori. And as she's driving by, she sees her they're smoking. I think it's cigarettes. That's one of the things I always I always thought it was cigarettes. I did. I think some people thought it was marijuana, but I always thought it was cigarettes. And they see uh, Annie sees her dad outside of a local hardware store that was recently broken into. And they basically, you know, says what's going on. It says that somebody's, you know, somebody, uh, some kid stole a mask. He goes, why do you think? Excuse me. He says some, you know, probably a couple kids broke in. Why do you think it was a couple of kids? And he asked her dad, he says, because he stole a rope, a couple of knives and a mask. This is where we find out that Michael gets the iconic, you know, white mask. Yeah. They leave. And literally as soon as the second leaves, um, uh, Dr. Loomis goes up, says he needs to talk to Sheriff Brackett and kind of tell him what's going on. And this, during this whole time, Michael has been trailing um, Lori and Annie. And so after they leave, one of the things is as Dr. Loomis, you know, says he needs to talk to Sheriff, right behind him, Michael Myers, like, just drives right past him inside of his, uh, inside of the hospital station wagon. Yeah, and you get the famous line of, uh, of Annie, I think it's Annie saying, uh, "Is it that Havon Graham?" And uh, the other girl says, "I don't think so. He's kind of cute." The one with the Ben Tramer. Yeah, it's uh, it did yeah when when Michael drives by in the station wagon, Annie says, uh, "Isn't that hey? Isn't that Havon Graham?" Annie drops off Lori to babysit Tommy Doyle, and Annie's babysitting across the street Lindsay Wallace. Um, when this is happening. We also see um, we get a, a cut shot of where Dr. Loomis and Sheriff Brackett goes to the Meyer house and they go inside. They kind of they, we see, in my opinion, one of the best monologues in the film where he Dr. Loomis just goes into about the pure evil of Michael. I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left, no reason, no conscience, no understanding, even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, good or evil, why or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with the blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil eyes. I, I don't know that. Like, for me, this is like the way he says this monologue and the delivery of it was just, I just got a very chilling about, like, this guy is a ruthless killer. Yeah, that's how I felt, too. It really, the whole monologue really encompasses the aspect of Michael Myers as a whole. And one of the things to even to even, like, push that even further that michael is like pure evil and one of the things like you just there's some there's some rules in movies that you don't like really cross and two of them are you don't kill kids and you don't kill dogs yeah damn dog (laughs) and michael um they find the sheriff and dr loomis finds a dead dog and they said that um they said still warm they said michael probably got hungry 
So not only did he kill this dog, he also ate this dog, or parts of this dog at least. Which, um, that's like one of the things like you, like, anybody you ask anybody, like, you, those are two things you just don't do in, in movies is kill, is kill kids and kill uh, dogs. Yeah. Um, no offense to cat people, but I think it's an emotional attachment that people have with dogs. This is why Jason Voorhees is my boy. He doesn't kill animals or kids. Yeah, we're not talking about Jason Voorhees. Come on, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I even lost my train of thought because I just thought about how evil uh, Michael is. As we see this, though, um, Dr. Loomis is actually left at the Myers house. Uh, he says he's going to stay here. He think Mike will come back. And Sheriff says that he'll be around later. We go back and we see basically Tommy and Lori are carving a pumpkin. They talk about, you know, movies. And then we see Annie is on the phone um, as well as with Lindsay. They're watching movies. And at this time, they talk about Annie's on the phone with Lori. She spills popcorn on her uh, or butter on herself. And the dog's barking. And so... She tells Lindsay, oh, go, you know, go do something about that dog. And this is where we see Michael's outside of Lindsay's house and Michael kills their dog as well. We see Annie changes and she basically is going to drop off. Um, she's going to drop off Lindsay over at the Doyle house with Tommy and Lori because she's going to go pick up her boyfriend. And she drops him off. They talk about Ben Traber, the dance coming up. Um, Annie leaves, goes back to Lindsay's house to get in the car and all of a sudden, she notices that like the window is fogged up, and all of a sudden, uh, Michael is behind her and starts choking her and kills her. The only problem I had with the movie and these kills is just the over-exaggeration of the choking. <laughs> I mean, as a person that, like, uh, I don't know, it just it was one of those things where it's like, it, if you weren't in the same room watching the movie, you'd be like, what the hell are you watching? Because, like, when I was watching this for, like, the third time since we made this on our list, um, Jack was like, what are you watching? And I'm like, Halloween. He's like, oh, that sound, sounds so wrong from a different room. And I'm like, it does. It was a little bit over a kill, but especially, like, same thing with Lori. There's parts where she was being choked, and it was just kind of, I don't know if they should have raised the, the music level or a, do a different way of kind of syncing the music, but it felt like it was too high over the background music. Yeah. To me, to me, it was. It's a little unbalanced. I think we're getting to the point where I think we're getting to the point where we're just saying like sometimes the choking sounds like people are having sex. Yeah, yeah. basically, yeah. <laughs> it, it was. I'm like, are they enjoying this choking part of this movie? Yeah, it was just a little weird. But I mean, like, it, it's it just once again, it's nitpicking small things because there's really it, the movie's pretty flawless in some retrospects. You know what I mean? So I can't like even argue with that. Um, but it's like little things that I, I can only nitpick at. There's not too much. The only thing, um, man, it's it's one of those things where it's hard because I mean, obviously, we don't. I, I have never been shot, stabbed, or strangled, so I don't know. But it to me, it sounds like the struggle um, makes those makes certain grunts and noises. Um, and I would say kind of similar to you ever seen tennis players, especially I think Mar- Marie Sharapova, they're very famous yeah. for being like super loud. And her grunting, where it just sounds unnatural. Uh, one of the interesting things we talk about this, and this is a, a kill right here. That's not only does he as he strangle her, he actually slits her throat. There's no blood in this. There's no blood in the scene. The only blood, as we said, as I said earlier, is only in that first opening scene where he kills his sister Judith when he was six years old. Um, 
from there, as we get to um, after the death of of Annie, we see um, Linda, Linda and her boyfriend Bob. They arrive at the uh, at Lindsay Wallace's house. They go upstairs to have sex, and um, after they have sex, Bob comes down to grab a beer for Linda, and probably. No, not probably. This is definitely like the coolest kill. Um, because there's a, pretty much a total, if I'm doing my math correctly, in my head real quick, a total of five kills. With that, if you're not counting, if you're only counting humans, where as Bob goes to like a closet, Michael comes out and he puts him up against the wall and he stabs him, where the knife goes through, and he's hanging by the knife essentially that's through his stomach. This has to be like the world's strongest knife for it to hold up a body. <laughs> It may be made by Hattori Hanzo. <laughs> like, I was like, Jesus, man, that, that knife is durable. <laughs> so, as somebody who is, you know, I, I studied, you know, culinary for, for two weeks when I was in college, there are some knives that you potentially could do this. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm just joking. I just studied culinary for two weeks, but there are some strong knives out there. And I will say this, and I don't want that to go into. Uh, to, I don't want people to think I'm a psycho, but growing up um, in the area that I did with my family and, and you know we were raised by we by we uh, so, sorry I'm stuttering and as I try to spit this out we raised our own livestock and we slaughtered our livestock you know that was especially when it came for big occasions like you know weddings or quinceañeras or birthday parties or stuff like that. You know, we raised everything from, you know, sheep, lambs, pigs. Um, before I was even born, the gift that my parents got from one of my uncles was a calf. And they raised, and my dad had raised that calf, and that was what was going to be used for the food for the wedding. And so some of the art, some of the, you know, what we use, you, like, theoretically, it is somewhat possible. The knife is, not the door. I don't know about the door, but the knife is possible where you could do this. So I don't know if they had that type of kitchen knife inside, you know, Lindsay Wallace's house, but it's that part's possible. I think the door probably would have broken first. Yeah. That, you know, I, you know, he, you know, that was if, if you really want to nitpick on one death, that's one because if you know he stabbed him to the door, I can completely see the weight of the knife uh, of him where coming down through the door. At this point, Linda's in the bed, and we see Michael come with a sheet over him looking like a ghost with Bob's glasses on it. And this is one of the famous lines in the movie where she tries to call from where she thinks is her boyfriend, Bob says, uh, you know, come over here. And she's like, do you like anything you see? And she pulls down the blanket covers and exposes the goods as we say to keep it, you know, somewhat PG. <laughs> um, and then she, you know, he, Paul doesn't come up. Bob doesn't come over. Then the phone rings. Lori's on the end. As soon as she answers it, um, Mike comes behind her with the cord, the cord of the phone, and strangles her. And Lori thinks that they're playing games or something like that. Michael kills Linda, and he gets the phone. You can hear the heavy breathing. Hangs up. Lori, at this point, Michael starts getting the bodies to arrange them. We see and one of the things I forgot to mention that he puts Annie on the bed. And one of the earlier scenes that we didn't before Dr. Loomis saw the sheriff, um, he goes to the cemetery to look for the you know grave of Judith Myers, and the the gravestone is missing of Judith Myers. And 
Michael positions the stone at the top of the bed, where it says, here lies Judas Myers with Annie's body. And as Lori goes over, that's the first thing she sees is, you know, is the dead body of Annie with the headstone. And then she runs into the corpse of Linda as well as Bob. And as she's screaming in the hallway, we see blackness. And through the, through the blackness, we see the shape's face. Yeah, that's such a such an iconic image. And I think this is one of the things where, as we talk about the limited resources, just you know the way that they shoot this film with the score of the film that makes it so eerie and terrifying. And as Lori tries to walk down the stairs, Michael like stabs her and she falls down the stairs. She ends up getting up and going over back to the house and knocks on the door. And the kids let her in, and she locks it. A window is open, and that's how Michael gets in, right? I, I believe so, yeah. And as he gets in, at this point, Tom, uh, Lori told Tommy and Lindsay to go upstairs, lock themselves, and Michael attacks Lori. Lori ends up stabbing him in the neck with a knitting needle. She, Michael, at this time, looks incapacitated. She goes upstairs to check on the kids, and this is where, you know, Tommy says you can't kill the boogeyman line. Michael awakens. She tells the kids to go hide. And then she hides herself inside the room. And this is another iconic shot where Michael goes through the closet doors and it's locked. And he ends up breaking through with the knife. And the part is so like, the reason for me is not just iconic. It's not just because he breaks through it. But as he breaks through it, the, the closet light comes on. And it goes, and it's like going like on and off, and just it's like this terrifying image where you see Lori like looking up, and she's like doesn't know what to do. She ends up grabbing a wire coat hanger and and just basically straightens out and stabs him in the eye, and he you know drops the knife. She grabs the knife and stabs him. At this point, again, he's once again incapacitated. She tells um, the kids to go to the neighbors to call the police, and as the kids are running out screaming, um, Doctor Loomis, who who left the house, the Myers house, sees them sees the kids fleeing he goes into um tommy tommy's house where where laurie michael is to see what's going on at this point michael gets up and he starts choking uh laurie and as he's choking her she she takes off his takes off the masks as he takes off the masks and laurie falls down he puts it back on at the exact same time dr miss sees them and shoots him and follows him, ends up shooting him six times, and he falls over the balcony to the ground. And at this point, Lori's like crying, says, was that the boogeyman? And Dr. Lewis says, as a matter of fact, it was. He goes over, looks over to the balcony, sees that Michael's gone. Dr. Loomis is like kind of angry. Lori's still crying, we hear the iconic Halloween music. But there's also at the end, we see heavy breathing that is Michael through, as we see a montage of all the different locations in Hatterfields where he could be you know, in their house and Lindsay's house um, throughout, and then we get the, the end credits. Yeah, you can tell that they had a, a low budget for this movie, but you would think that they could get somebody Halloween night in the middle of a suburban neighborhood. There's no fucking trick-or-treaters. <laughs> we got no money, man. What are you talking about? <laughs> and one of the things is, as we're talking about who played Michael, uh, which is Nick Castle, Tommy Lee Wallace, um, even at one point, John Carpenter had it on. One yeah. of the things I also read was the reason why these people were paid next to nothing 
or it was because they basically anybody who was around that that was a certain size, that's who was picked to play Michael that day. They said at one point there was um, they said there's even up to six people that played Michael oh, on this, wow. at this day. Um, the the most famous one being Nick Castle, uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, and uh, at one point John Carpenter. But yeah. Um, they yeah. So when you look at this film, you have Doctor Loomis, you have Marion Chambers, you have Laurie Strode, Annie, Linda. The sheriff, Bob. There's the about like yeah. seven, and then the two kids, nine. You have about like nine people with um, really Lori having like the most part, like the most action. One thing is, yeah. as I was looking into Dr. Loomis, you know, he did technically shoot over five days, but he's in this film for a total of 18 minutes. It, you know, it's a 90 minute film, but he's in here for a total of 18 minutes total. Yeah, they're definitely worth scrounging. I would be interested to see who they got for the other one, like for the other extras, like the people at the sanitarium, you know, the other sheriffs who are around the area, those, um, the kids in the school, those are the ones I want to know, like, you know, where they come from. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought that, yeah, I thought, you know, maybe they could have gotten, you know, some extras or, you know, for somebody who doesn't want to, who didn't want any money, some kids or something to dress up and just be trick or treaters. That's one thing I really like about the 28th. Don't, don't say, oh, I thought you were going to say something else. I was like, don't say it. You're no, triggered. no, no, no. This, that's one thing I really like about the 2018 remake of Halloween because they do a whole Halloween night thing and they have everybody out trick-or-treating and everything while he's killing people. Yeah, you know, and actually, you know, eventually we're going to, you know, we're definitely going to cover Halloween 2018. But that's what made them oh, mad to me just further – pushes like this the sadisticness of michael myers when he's going through the you know that neighborhood yeah you see all the kids trick-or-treating and he's just like randomly like going to people's houses and killing them yeah in a very gruesome way i mean and it's all it's all that awesome uh, one shot take of everything but yeah overall like i this is this is easily one of the best slashers and one of the best horror movies of all time i was gonna say um as you said that so we have judith myers the unnamed truck driver Linda, Bob, and Annie are the, the deceased the deceased humans, and we have two dogs on Michael's kill count for this movie. Okay, it's weird when you list them out because like I keep thinking it's more than it is. Well, it'll be interesting. One of the things as we go into you know event, as we cover future Halloweens because I would love to cover two, four, H two O, five, and six are below that. I guess I could make a case why you know resurrection, but. I noticed you skipped one in there. Yeah, intentionally. Um, <laughs> one of the things is, I, I want to ask you guys this question though. Um, and we'll talk, I mean, eventually his, his body count changes quite a bit, and as well as you know the different ways he kills people. One of the interesting things about this film, as I was reading, was there was they narrowed it down to two masks. Even before we get to you know, the, the, there's a Captain Kirk mask that everybody knows about. One of the other ones that wasn't um a lot of people may not know is there was another idea of them using i believe his name is emmett kelly a, a sad clown and oh. it was a sad clown with like teased it would be like teased red curly hair and that would be the mask that he would he would have used and it was kind of you know i don't want to say an homage but basically a play on the fact that he wore a clown mask as a child yeah um one of the reasons why they I think the main reason why they didn't was because it looked more 
uh, you know, kind of more creepy and demented. And so they went with the the Captain Kirk mask. You know, how would you, what would you guys feel like that movie? How much it would have changed if they would have had like you know just say any clown masks? I, I don't think it would have been as impactful of a movie, and we probably wouldn't have had a franchise if he would have used a clown mask. I'm looking at some of the people that have the, the Emmett Kelly mask, and then they put the white makeup on it with just a red nose. And some people actually don't have the red nose with just the white makeup. It's pretty menacing because, I mean, the whole fear of clowns is because you can't really tell what emotion they have. So, like, with the with the William Shatner mask, it's kind of like the same thing. There's really no emotion on the face. Yeah. So I, I think it's more, for me, Mike Myers, what makes him creepy isn't even the mask, it's the poise he has, the way he stands, and the way he, like, stalks the person. Like, the, it just, there's just no life in him. It's just like a body. So I, I don't know if the mask would have made a difference for me. I'm not sure. I would have to see how it would play out. I can't be yeah. honest. Yeah. It's uh, one of the reasons, as they said, it was demented or creepy, but when they did the, the Captain Kirk mask, they felt that this was actually more creepy because he was emotionless. You know, whereas... Um, I'll give you an example. It, it, from in Halloween Five, there's a period where Michael Myers wears a different mask, and it's to kind of to um, lure a victim in. And it was kind of like a, I, w- I want to say kind of like a weird gangster style, like you know, 1920s gangster, because I feel like it had like a cigar in the mouth or something like that. And it's kind of like, you know, when I think of that, and I think of him possibly wearing a clown mask, it's like. It's it's not that it's not it's not that it wouldn't be creepy or not that it'd be demented. To me, it shows like is there some sort of emotion behind the killer? And I think that was one of the, one of the main reasons why I love Michael is because with that blank held look, is that he ha- he's emotionless. There's nothing that can get to this person. Any uh, final thoughts about the movie? It's just good. I mean, it's sad because, like, I don't want to say a lot of the movies that come out now don't hold up, but there's something about some of the old classic ones that are just going to be timeless. You know, it's just one of those movies that you can watch and people are going to watch it another 50 years from now. You know what I mean? It's going to be still a staple that we talk about every Halloween, still something that people will remake and try to reboot for years and decades to come. Yeah, there's things I would like to see more, of course, if the budget wasn't so restricting. But for what it's worth, it's a, it's a pretty damn good movie. Yeah, I, I agree with what Maria said. This is easily like one of the best horror movies and slashers of all, of all time. Easily, always, always in my top five. Honestly, like I think them being the low, them having the low budget is what adds to it and makes it more impactful, makes it more scary. Because I feel like if they would have had a higher budget, they probably would have overdone it, and it wouldn't be as sinister as we see it yeah just whole the whole movie is great uh, and michael myers just has become an iconic you know has become an icon in the horror community yeah it's it's definitely one of those things where it's you look back and you look back now what do they always try to make over halloween they always try to yeah. make friday 13 they always try to make freddy cougar they always try to make chucky it's one of those things where it's just like it's good and that's why they try to always reboot it and if they have to have a reboot it's because it's damn good so that's where Halloween falls for me. One of those damn good movies. It for sure has the best score. Uh, oh, yeah. my, my favorite score in a horror movie ever. Like the iconic Halloween theme is just amazing. I can just sit and listen to it. I love it so much. And, and I really like the, the cinematography in the, in the movie as well. Definitely. You know, one of the reasons why I, like I told you, I've been obsessed with the movie was we talked about the limited resources and 
I think with that, you know, this is this for a lot of people know this is truly an independent film. This yeah. was an independent film that was done, and everybody worked their ass off to make this film what it was. And you know, from we talked about the lighting, the way that was the lighting was done in a certain way because they didn't have the resources. The you know the way that they the clothes that they used, the reason why it was done for one day. So much effort was put into the way it was shot, the, the way it was scored was because those were things that they could work to their advantage to make this movie terrifying. And one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of slasher films is because they will last the test of time. And I think that's why it's truly amazing that this film will, is a part of the National Film Registry of American Library Congress, will last forever because it's so good and everybody works so hard. It made me, I mean, I think it opened it opened the eyes for sure about how great of an actor Jamie Lee Curtis is in her first feature film. Donald Pleasance in the role that he had as Dr. Loomis was uh, tremendous because he felt like his life was committed to stopping this evil. My favorite slasher film, favorite horror film of all time for those reasons why. I mean, you, you pretty much summed up everything. I'm going to give this a two at, I'm just kidding, I'm getting a five pumpkins out of five. I was going to vote you off the island. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to do that. No, I'm gonna give it a five. I already told you I blew off I blew off the rating scale. This gets a perfect one for me. And I won't break our rating scale. I'll give it a five out of five. I, I respect the rating scale. I'm not gonna go all crazy people as some other people do. Well, this has been super fun. I apologize if I talk too fast or I sound way too excited. I just love this film so yeah. I'll, yeah. I, I straight up fanboy myself through this film. You pretty much got it down scene for scene too. I really appreciated that. It was on the same level as uh, Maria was last week with Stephen with Stephen King's It. <laughs> Shush, leave me alone. <laughs> I was so happy. <laughs> well, anyway, guys, uh, we hope you've all enjoyed this review of Halloween, and join us next time as we're going to be talking about one of my favorite films and uh, one of my favorite horror movies and just in general Halloween movies of all time, Trick or Treat. I'm actually really excited for this because I've only seen this one time. Yeah, but the one of the things I love about this is I think the term is the anthology. Is that, is that how they call it? Anthology, yeah. the way. Um, yeah, yeah, it's an anthology. And, yeah, and how the characters from each story like intertwine together in certain you know unique ways. That always like that style of film has always fascinated me um, and how it's done. So I'm really excited for us to cover this one um, more in detail. So I can't wait to watch it again soon. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm I'm excited to revisit it, and I can't wait to talk about it. Uh, well, uh, well, thank you everybody for joining us, and with this, we must uh, bid you adieu. Goodbye, good night, stay creepy, bang.